Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of infant death, miscarriage, and dead animals that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. It was a mild morning in the English countryside in September of 1726. 25-year-old Mary Toft's toddler son played in the grass at her feet as she tossed the last of her family's well-worn clothing into the boiling pot. Then, a wave of pain hit her. She doubled over in agony. Mary immediately recognized the pangs as they spread across her abdomen. She'd already brought three children into the world. But there was no way she could be pregnant. Just last month, she'd suffered a miscarriage, the anguished memory still fresh in her mind. And yet, the unexplainable was happening. And it was happening now. She was in labor. Mary's neighbor and her mother-in-law overheard her tormented cries and rushed to her side. With their support, Mary made it inside. She spent the next hour pushing through her pain, tears, and utter confusion. One last excruciating push, and she felt herself pass something large and jagged. She saw the horrified looks on her neighbors' and mother-in-law's faces before her eyes found the thing she'd just birthed. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. 
At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This week, in a one-part episode, we're covering Mary Toft, an 18th century woman who became an international sensation after she claimed to give birth to rabbits. We'll follow her humble beginnings, the bizarre criminal lengths she went to trying to improve her lot in life, and how her scam all came crashing down. By the early 1700s, the Age of Reason had begun in Europe. Also known as the Enlightenment, this period marked a time when intellectuals valued observable evidence and the application of reason over blind faith. Scholars asked questions before accepting things as truth. Immanuel Kant coined the motto of the age, Dare to Know. In his essay, What is Enlightenment?, Kant wrote, If I have a book that thinks for me, a pastor who acts as my conscience, a physician who prescribes my diet, and so on, then I have no need to exert myself. His aim was to encourage his readers to overcome their fear and laziness and think for themselves. And so, over the course of the 18th and 19th centuries, people started to question the world around them. As written materials became more accessible, there was a growing public interest in science and economics. Even still, things didn't change overnight. And when word of Mary Toft's supernatural births spread, even England's most prominent physicians were left scratching their heads. Mary Toft was baptized on February 21, 1703, the second oldest of John and Jane Denyer's five children. The family lived in the rural town of Godalming, England, just under 40 miles from London. The small village was once a successful hub for the wool industry, but by the 18th century, it had fallen into decline. Foreign competition arose and most of the remaining jobs moved north to Lancashire and Yorkshire. And as a result, most of the residents, including Mary's family, were destitute. She likely grew up in a small home with only one or two rooms. With seven people in her family, they would have been practically elbow to elbow. Food was scarce and meals consisted mostly of bread and potatoes. Before we continue with Mary's psychology, please note that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Journalist Oliver Berkman covered the psychological effects of poverty in an article for The Guardian. Paraphrasing the findings of behavioral economist Sendel Mullenathan and psychologist Eldar Shafir, he wrote, Living with too little imposes huge psychic costs, reducing our mental bandwidth and distorting our decision-making in ways that dig us deeper into a bad situation. Having grown up amid scarcity, Mary likely experienced these strains from a very young age, and it caused her to grow up fast. 
Women of Mary's class tended to marry younger than their wealthier peers, seeking the stability a marriage offered. In 1720, when Mary was still a teenager, she married 18-year-old Joshua Toft. Together, they moved into a tiny house rented from a wealthy landowner. This was a typical arrangement. Landowners typically rented houses to peasants and hired them to work their lands. But because lower-class people like Mary were employed by the people who controlled the roof over their heads, it made it hard for the workers to fight any mistreatment they suffered. As a result, Mary may have felt trapped by her situation. There was no end in sight to her poverty, especially once the Toft family began to grow. Within the first three years of their marriage, Mary and Joshua welcomed their first two children, Mary and Anne, into their lives. Tragically, Anne didn't survive to her first birthday. After the loss of her young daughter, Mary probably experienced intense emotional trauma. Psychologist Romeo Vitelli said, the emotional blow associated with child loss can lead to a wide range of psychological and physiological problems, including depression, anxiety, cognitive and physical symptoms linked to stress, marital problems, increased risk for suicide, pain, and guilt. Despite her possible trauma, Mary continued to build her family the best she could. The next year, in 1724, Mary gave birth to her third child, a healthy son named James. And in 1726, at age 25, she was expecting once again. Joshua Toft didn't earn enough to support the family on his own, so Mary continued to work well into her pregnancy. And the job was strenuous. She pulled weeds in hop fields, back-breaking work that she walked hours for each day. She didn't have many other options as an illiterate farm laborer. The pay was low, irregular, and likely one-third to one-half that of a man's salary at the time. But they had mouths to feed, and it was something. One day that summer, pregnant Mary was startled by a rabbit in the field where she was working. Her mouth watered at the idea of a dinner more substantive than bread and potatoes. She knew she had to try to catch the rabbit. Another female field worker helped in the pursuit, but they came up empty. The animal was just too quick. For weeks following the incident, the rabbit consumed Mary's thoughts and even her dreams. Maybe it was pregnancy cravings. Her desire was insatiable. But at the time, rabbits were practically a delicacy and not one her impoverished family could afford. It was a craving that was impossible to satisfy. Then in August of 1726, 25-year-old Mary woke in the middle of the night. She instantly knew that something was wrong. Pain seared inside of her. She reached down to find her nightclothes soaked with blood. She alerted Joshua, but there was nothing he could do. She was in the throes of a miscarriage. The blood seemed endless. Mary later described it as a flooding. Then she passed a lump of flesh the size of her arm. 
She was positive that she'd lost the baby. She had to stay home the next day, and the other women at the field covered her work so she wouldn't lose pay. While some miscarriages last hours, others take longer. Mary experienced pain and bleeding over the course of three weeks. And the effects weren't merely physical. According to the American Psychological Association, lost pregnancies can heighten a woman's risk for depression and anxiety for years after they occur. After previously losing a child in infancy, Mary's distress was at its peak. She certainly didn't have the proper tools to help her process her feelings, nor could she take the time to recuperate. She had to return to work and help provide for her family, setting her feelings aside. Everything changed on September 27, 1726, when Mary's neighbor, Mary Gill, heard her crying out in pain. Gill ran over to find Mary and her mother-in-law, Anne Toft, the situation was urgent. Mary was in labor. The women wondered how this was possible. It had been just one month since the miscarriage, but there was no doubt that Mary's agony was genuine. The women sent Joshua away, calmed Mary down, and guided her through the birth in her home. Mary was nervous, sweating, and in immense pain with every push. Anne tried to soothe Mary with comforting words as she watched her daughter-in-law's belly contract. After an hour or so, Mary Gill and Anne confirmed that something was inside of Mary, something that wasn't human. She'd given birth to some kind of creature. Up next, Mary's strange births inspire fascination across an entire nation. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com Spotify. TommyJohn.com Spotify. See site for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now back to the story. In September of 1726, one month after a painful, extended miscarriage, 25-year-old Mary Toft went into labor unexpectedly. Her neighbor, Mary Gill, and mother-in-law, Anne Toft, were there to deliver the unexpected baby. The women were horrified by the result. They delivered what appeared to be a dead cat with an eel's spine and its liver removed. Though Anne had 12 children of her own and had served as a local midwife, she exclaimed she'd never encountered something like this. 
Mary, too, acted surprised and disturbed, but clearly it was biologically impossible for her to have formed the horrible creature in her womb. Someone had put it there, and Mary had let them. Mary's true motivation for faking the birth is unclear, but it's likely she thought she could profit off of it. By the 1700s, there was good business in displaying people with deformities in sideshow attractions. For example, parents who showcased their conjoined twins drew curious spectators from all over. Mary felt pressure to provide for her family however she could, and perhaps the allure of a profitable carnival act proved irresistible. Whatever her motive, the degree of risk Mary took to have the creature implanted could be a sign of deeper psychological issues. Psychiatrist Pamela Cantor found there is a strong relationship between depression and high-risk behaviors. And Mary was likely experiencing complex depression after her miscarriage and the loss of her daughter. Historian Karen Harvey noted that Mary's grief could have shaped the whole affair. But Mary never received a psychological diagnosis. She lived more than a century before modern psychology, and her contemporaries were less concerned with Mary's mental state than with her biology. The only thing Mary Gill and Anne Toft were sure of was that this birth was unnatural. Anne wanted someone with more expertise to weigh in on the situation. She sent Joshua to the nearby town of Guilford. There, he sought the help of John Howard, a midwife with 30 years of experience, and showed him the cat creature. While the female body and the reproductive process still weren't well understood by the medical community at the time, Howard still knew enough to be skeptical of the story. He wrote it off as a hoax and dismissed Joshua. But the next morning, curiosity got the best of Howard. He decided to go to Godalming and ask more questions. As soon as he arrived at Mary's home, Anne Toft presented several other animal parts she said Mary delivered in the night. No one but Anne had witnessed these additional births, so the animal parts may not have even been extracted from Mary. Howard remained skeptical, but he wasn't ready to disregard the story quite yet. He stayed in town that night, and the following day he returned to the Toft home. Mary complained of pain and said she felt something else in her womb. Throughout the day, Howard delivered several inexplicable births with his own hands. He removed three tabby cat legs and one rabbit leg from Mary's vagina. He'd never seen anything like it. Over the course of the next month, Mary produced even more specimens in Howard's presence. Among them were the legs and claws of a cat, the head of a cat, the head of a rabbit, what seemed to be a pig's bladder, and in a single day, Nine dead baby rabbits. At the rate that she was birthing these animals, Mary likely had help in her scheme. Harvey said of her ongoing animal births, this was a genuine physical trauma and would have been extremely difficult to execute alone. 
We don't know who exactly was helping Mary. She revealed nothing, still alleging that these creatures kept simply developing inside her. When she finally recounted her experience chasing that rabbit in the field, Howard came to a diagnosis. Mary's labors weren't supernatural at all. This was a case of maternal impression. Maternal impression is an outdated theory that hypothesizes how a woman's mental state can affect the physical development of her unborn child. When a baby was born unhealthy, or even with unique birthmarks, the mother's emotions, thoughts, or imagination were thought to be the cause. Just two years prior, in 1724, James Mowbray wrote a midwifery manual called The Female Physician. In it, he explained that if a woman was frightened or surprised, her negative emotions towards the scare could imprint upon the baby. So much so, even an image of the object might trigger fear. Howard would have read the manual, but it's also possible that someone in Mary's orbit might have heard about the theory as well. Doctors in the Age of Reason clung to this idea because it offered an explanation for otherwise inexplicable birth defects and suggested a connection between the mind and the body, a logical cause and effect. In Mary's case, Howard reasoned that her obsession with the rabbit during her pregnancy was the source of all of her troubles. From this point onward, Mary mainly used rabbits in her con. She seemed to realize that other animal parts wouldn't support the maternal impression narrative. Howard pickled and jarred all of the creatures he'd delivered from Mary thus far. They lined the shelves of his study. But he needed more evidence. He moved Mary from her hometown of Godalming to Guilford so he could observe her ongoing births more closely. This was likely a hard decision for Mary to make, with two young children at home, but she was focused on the long term. It's worth noting that there was no anesthesia at the time, and Mary passed animal parts with intact claws and teeth. Implanting and retaining dismembered creatures also put her at great risk for life-threatening infections. She was likely only willing to engage in such risky behaviors because she'd already survived so much hardship and scarcity all of her life. And now she saw a way out through national renown. On October 10, 1726, the Weekly Journal, also known as the British Gazetteer, published a short news story about Mary's rabbit births. Instantly, she was the talk of the neighborhood, but Howard wanted to elevate the matter beyond gossip, so he alerted the elite medical community about the bizarre births. It's unclear whether Howard was naively excited to publicize Mary's unique condition, or if he'd figured out that this was all a hoax and became complicit in the lie. After all, this groundbreaking case could have given the little-known Guilford midwife a chance at fame as well. So he wrote to prominent doctors and scientists in London, as well as King George I's secretary. His Highness sent Nathaniel San André, his personal surgeon and anatomist, 
and Samuel Molyneux, secretary to the Prince of Wales, to investigate the matter. Son André had never earned a medical degree, but he was confident he could solve the mystery of Mary Toft, and he was thrilled when he and Molyneux arrived in Guildford on November 15th, conveniently at the very moment Mary complained of labor pains. Neighborhood women crowded around Mary's bedside to witness the birth. San André stepped in and took the lead on the delivery of what was now Mary's 15th rabbit. It emerged in sections, first a segment of the rabbit's body, followed by the rest of the body, and finally, the head. San André was wholly convinced. He said he saw Mary's abdomen move and quiver during labor and deduced that the contractions were dismembering the animals, causing them to come out in fragments. Upon dissecting the animals, he reasoned that their lungs were smaller than those of a typical rabbit born in the wild, and the mucus in the intestines was similar to that of a fetus. These were no ordinary rabbits. Thrilled to be one of the earliest witnesses to a new phenomenon, San André returned to King George and the Prince of Wales with a few jarred specimens of his own. Mary had managed to fool even the king's physician. While the Toft family celebrated their successful deception, Mary may have been experiencing ever higher anxiety. This was all escalating at an alarming rate. Now she was fooling royalty. And of course, the longer the ruse went on, the longer Mary would have to subject her body to pain and potential infection. But if her ultimate plan was to cash in one day, getting more publicity would only help. However, Mary also may have been too terrified to come clean about her crimes. The 18th century's justice system was harsh and quick to issue death sentences. She had good reason to fear, as King George still had his suspicions about the rabbit births. Despite the proof from San André and Molyneux, he wanted corroboration. He dispatched a German surgeon, Suriacus Allers, to investigate and report back. The moment Mary met Allers, she knew he was suspicious. She had to be cautious. She didn't want to risk going into labor the second he walked through the door. It was too similar to the last time she'd proved herself. So instead, after his arrival, Mary kept her legs closed tightly as she moved around the room. The rabbit in her vagina felt like it was on the verge of slipping out. After introductions and some conversation, Mary had to put an end to things. She complained of labor pains and launched into her rabbit-birthing parlor trick. But to Mary's disappointment, Aller's view did not change. He took some of Mary's rabbit samples back to London, where he was determined to conduct a more thorough examination. There, Allers found damning evidence against Mary's claims. Dissection of the rabbit plainly showed that its colon contained partially digested pieces of hay, straw, and corn, none of which were in Mary's diet. 
He also noticed the bones and muscles of the animal parts appeared to be cleanly cut, not violently torn apart by contractions, as San André had posited. To settle the matter, the king once more sent San André, this time with another prominent doctor, Sir Richard Manningham, to observe Mary. Manningham was a London-based midwife who had a roster of predominantly upper-class patients. Mary tried not to panic as another prominent skeptic came to observe her. She'd run out of parts to give birth to. All she had left was a hog's bladder. Mary proceeded anyway, but to her chagrin, Manningham was also unconvinced. However, San André and Howard persuaded him to keep his doubts private for the time being and observe her more. Their reputations were on the line now, too. On November 29, 1726, about two months after her first birth, Mary relocated to the hustle and bustle of London, where she could be observed regularly. By that time, Mary had supposedly birthed 17 rabbits, and no one had yet publicly accused her of lying. Instead, more doctors, surgeons, and midwives wanted to examine her. She was told she'd receive a royal pension for her time. Finally, she'd get some financial assistance after months of missing work at the fields. She was stationed at Roger Lacey's Banyo, a bathhouse in modern-day Leicester Square, right by the residence of the Prince of Wales. There, she was under constant observation, sometimes by ten men at a time. Many reported to San André, who was looking for more allies in his corner. His position in the court was on the line. Unfortunately for him, another highly respected doctor, James Douglas, sided with the disbelievers. Mary's rabbits simply didn't fit with the other recorded cases of human children with deformities. And in the meantime, while Mary went into labor several times at the bathhouse, she failed to produce even one creature, rabbit or otherwise. The close supervision made it difficult for her to get her hands on more animals. She may not have been able to insert anything without help. She also may have found it too painful. She developed a severe infection. Inserting dismembered animal parts had finally caught up with her. Doubt was certainly spreading, but Mary still wasn't officially deemed a fraud. Until... A porter for the bathhouse was caught trying to sneak a rabbit into Mary's room. Everything changed. Finally, Mary's scam was exposed. Coming up, Mary Toft pleads for her life in court. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. After faking several animal births in the fall of 1726, 25-year-old Mary Toft was finally exposed as a fraud. A porter was caught delivering dead rabbits to her room. The porter, Thomas Howard, confessed to doctors James Douglas and Richard Manningham that Mary's sister-in-law, Margaret Toft, had put him up to the task. She'd requested the smallest rabbit he could get his hands on. Meanwhile, back in Guilford, the Baron of Onslow had taken it upon himself to conduct his own investigation. He felt it was his duty since his family's principal residence was in Guilford. He, like many, was enthralled by the headlines about Mary and found her story all too fantastical to be true. He asked around Godalming about the Toft family, hoping to find some hard evidence that could prove Mary's story was a lie. Within a day of the porter's confession, Lord Onslow found four people in Godalming who testified under oath that they had each sold several rabbits to Mary's husband, Joshua Toft. The sales were all around the time that Mary was birthing them. One woman said that on the same day Mary was moved to Guilford, Joshua purchased a rabbit and mentioned he was headed there. The case against her came together all too quickly. London Justice of the Peace Thomas Clarges took Mary into custody for questioning. When confronted with the evidence and the porter's deposition, Mary gave them nothing. For two days, she stuck to her story of natural, monstrous births. It wasn't until Manningham threatened a painful exploratory operation that 25-year-old Mary had a change of heart. She confessed to the hoax on December 7, 1726, and both she and John Howard, her Guilford midwife, were indicted for being cheats. This proved to be very unfortunate for San Andre, as the confession came just days after his publication of a 40-page pamphlet titled A Short Narrative of an Extraordinary Delivery of Rabbits. In it, he presented all of Mary's claims as spectacular truth. He was further humiliated when Mary gave three confessions on December 7th, December 8th, and finally, on December 12th. However, Mary's various statements were inconsistent. She was questioned under threat of a torturous operation after months of non-stop invasive examinations and observation by aristocratic men, and while also fighting a severe infection. She probably felt scared, overwhelmed, and physically exhausted. She may have been compelled to say whatever she felt her interrogator wanted. Dr. Douglas recorded Mary's confessions as she was illiterate. In each testimony, she named different cohorts in the hoax. 
In one, she said an unknown woman, an organ grinder's wife, insisted Mary go through with the plan and provided the rabbits. In another, she said Howard helped put the animals into her vagina. And in the final iteration, she implicated her mother-in-law, Anne Toft. Mary said Anne demanded she go through with the plan, which would make her a good living. Mary was ordered not to reveal Anne's involvement, which is why she didn't accuse her at first. While the co-conspirators differed in each confession, there were common threads in all three. In each, Mary Toft considered herself a victim. She said the whole scheme was someone else's idea, and someone else had been inserting the animal pieces. Each confession highlighted her own pain and suffering. She described her August miscarriage in an unnecessary amount of detail, signaling that it was weighing on her mind. Historian Karen Harvey said that the most repeated comments in Toft's confessions refer to pain. There are 71 references in total across 36 pages. Mary's statements proved once and for all, that the rabbit births were fake, but the implanting and removal of numerous animal parts took a real physical toll. We'll never know the reason Mary lied or why she put herself at such incredible risk, but it is clear she was in a very vulnerable situation. It's possible she never thought the hoax would reach the king, but since it did, and since she publicly embarrassed George's court physician, she had to be properly punished. Just a week after she was brought to London, Mary was charged as a notorious and vile cheat. She was sent to Bridewell Prison on the banks of the Fleet River on December 9, 1726. Mary was allegedly placed in a public-facing cell so her warders could show her off to onlookers. By this point, her strange abilities were known to be a scam, yet people still flocked to get a glimpse of the rabbit mother. She was an international sensation. When news of her confession and arrest broke, the newspapers went wild. Mary was the subject of copious articles, as well as satirical cartoons, engravings, and even poems. Among them is the famous satire etching called Canicular Eye by William Hogarth, which shows Mary in the midst of labor, surrounded by rabbits and her doctors. One, thought to be Manningham, has his hand up her skirts. Mary was painted as a wicked woman, but every medic associated with her was regarded as an imbecile. This included the doctors who didn't believe her, but they were ridiculed for ever taking her seriously enough to investigate. Even doctors who weren't at all involved in the affair published defenses. Mary Toft's hoax damaged the reputation of the entire medical profession. Mary's midwife, John Howard, was initially indicted alongside Mary, but his charges were dropped in the end. However, he was able to overcome the whole ordeal and continued practicing midwifery in Guilford. The king's personal physician, Nathaniel San André, was not as fortunate. 
he purchased an advertisement in the December 9th Daily Journal in which he admitted his mistake and tried to save face. But it was too late. He lost his position, his reputation, and all of his patients. His medical career was over, and he died in poverty in 1776 in Southampton. As for Mary, she served between three and four months at Bridewell before the prosecution's case began to fall apart. They determined she hadn't been in London long enough to receive her royal pension, and she didn't actually profit in any way from her hoax. The charges were eventually dropped, and Mary was allowed to return to Godalming and her family. But her story was impossible for Englanders to forget. The Duke of Richmond had a residence near Mary's hometown, and in the years that followed, he occasionally summoned her to show off to his dinner guests. It wasn't quite the idle life of fame and fortune she'd hoped for, but it was better than toiling in obscurity. Mary died on January 13, 1763, in her early 60s, Thanks to her odd season in the headlines, her obituary was published alongside those of statesmen. Her peculiar case is often cited as illustrating the shift of ideas from old-world superstitions to the more rational age of reason. It also serves as a reminder of the drastic measures a poor family would take to alleviate their financial stresses in the 18th century. Whatever her true motives were, Mary Toft, trapped in a life of scarcity and obscurity, took her fate into her own hands and made history. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, at Parcast, and Twitter, at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Joel Stein, and Carly Madden. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Mary Foreman. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 